The meeting will now begin. My name is Becky and I'm an alcoholic. This is an open meeting of the Atlantic Group of Alcoholics Anonymous and all are welcome to attend. We hope that what you learn here may be helpful to your recovery and or understanding. The format of tonight's meeting is two 10-minute speakers, the first of which, of which will speak on the fourth tradition, followed by our information break, and then our main speaker, who will speak for 30 minutes. Our first 10-minute speaker to share on the fourth tradition is Josh P. Hey everybody, my name is Josh, I'm an alcoholic. It's really good to be here. Um, although I was just realizing I can see the exact count of the number of people. Um, which is somehow more intimidating than being in a church. Um, no, it's really good to be here. Thanks for asking me, Deborah. Um, and thank actually specifically the Friday Atlantic group meeting because I had about two and a half years when I started going there and I knew nothing about the traditions. And that meeting, plus my, my former sponsor, Brooke, and my current sponsor, Eddie, told me about the traditions. So thanks to all of you. Uh, I'm just going to read the tradition, short form and long form. Tradition four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. That's the short form, long form. Every group manages its affairs as it pleases, except when AA as a whole is threatened. Is such liberty dangerous? The group, like the individual, must eventually conform to principles that guarantee survival. Two storm signals, a group ought not do anything which would injure AA as a whole, nor affiliate itself with outside interests. An example, the AA center that didn't work. Um, so I was looking at the checklist for this tradition and actually before I get into it, I just also wanna say, if you're new, um, I know I heard this a lot when I was new, um, that you, know, you might not be interested in the traditions, but the really simple reason why they matter so much is that without a group, I know I could never have gotten sober. Um, I tried by myself to moderate, control, stop, and I couldn't go more than about 48 hours. So um, it just it just shows the like how vital the traditions are and how for me about after a year, I needed to start giving. Um, I had been taking my whole first year and I was kind of dry at the end of that time and I needed to start giving. So I needed to learn the traditions to better be able to give to my group. Um, so there's a checklist for the traditions and it's really helpful and it's just, I'm not going to read all of them, but two of them helped me kind of think how I would talk about this. Um, and the first one is, do I insist there are only, sorry, my handwriting is terrible. Uh, do I insist there are only a few right ways of doing AA? Um, and it's such a good question. Uh, and I can definitely be tempted to think that there's one, not a few, <laughs> but one, right way of doing AA. Um, it's easy to fall into that. Um, you know, I get attached to what helped me and what kept me sober. And I get attached to what has been passed down to me and what I pass on to my sponsees. Um, but when I was thinking about this, I just started thinking about some of the kind of wacky meetings I've been to over the years. And, you know, these are meetings that help keep people sober and they look totally different than most of the meetings I go to. Um, one was a Thursday night, 11 p.m. candlelit meeting in downtown St. Louis. And <laughs> so it's candlelit at 11 p.m. That's one thing. Um, 
But the thing that always jumps out to me is that at the end of the meeting, they would be reading through the promises. And after every promise, the whole group would scream something. Um, chant. Let's say chant. Uh, so, you know, fear of economic insecurity would leave us. Cha-ching, I'm rich. Blank. Um, and so the whole group would be chanting stuff like that the whole time. Or, no, not the whole time. Just during the promises. Uh and, you know, then it would end at midnight and we'd go, like, <laughs> this is the type of group where people would go drink coffee after that meeting at midnight. Um, and it kept me sober. You know, it was actually, I think my first service commitment was, like, alternate chair of that meeting or something. Um, and it helped keep me sober and it helped keep other people sober. And kind of on a similar note, I used to go to a meeting in D.C. where the whole group, would chant the steps in unison every time. Um, and that's like a little calmer <laughs> compared to the other one. Um, but, you know, so when I think about that meeting, I think, huh, I wonder what the newcomer thought when they walked in to, to 50 people chanting the steps together. And like, I don't know what they thought, but again, it helped keep me sober. It helped keep other people sober. And obviously with AG, like there are certain things, you know, I'm, I'm wearing a suit on Zoom. Um, I haven't done that for anything besides AG this past year. Uh, actually, that's not true. I wore a nice shirt for Hugo's wedding. Um, I mean, I still don't wear a suit. <laughs> um, uh, and now he's texting me. Um, so anyway, all, every group is autonomous. Every group can do all these things. Every group groups can be weird. I'm sure there's much, much weirder things than, than what I just mentioned. Um, and that, And I'm sure other people don't consider them weird. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we have to consider how these decisions we make in our business meetings, um, affect AA as a whole. And, you know, there's, there's a really, to me, clear example or like interesting example. Oh, thank you. Um, thanks Ashley. Uh, there's an example. I remember talking to my sponsor about groups meeting in person during the pandemic, um, and that's, you know, obviously groups made those decisions, some groups um, in, in different parts of the city, different parts of the country. Um, and to me, that's one where when you think about AA as a whole, it's like there's some major, really major repercussions. Like if somebody gets COVID at an AA meeting, that's a problem, um, in my opinion. You know, <laughs> obviously I'm not speaking for anyone besides myself up here. Um, in this Zoom box, uh, but it's it's against the law, and it uh, it could affect the reputation of AA as a whole, right? And, it's, and several of the other traditions talk about this, like our growth um, is largely due to like a good reputation. People thinking of reunited families, um, sober alcoholics, people going out making amends in the world. Um, and all of our decisions have to take that into consideration. And obviously there's smaller things too. Like if you're, if you start a new meeting at 7 PM on a Tuesday, maybe you want to think about, you know, are you affecting, uh, this group? Or are you affecting like your, your fellows? Um, do they have to choose between two meetings? They like <laughs> stuff like that. Um, they're just taking others into consideration. Um, and I was thinking about that one, one kind of simple way that I'm able to think about that is uh, the first tradition talks a lot about what do I have to give up to be part of an AA group? Um, 
if I care about the unity of the group, if I care about the recovery in the group, I sometimes have to uh, give something up. You know, I have to give up some element of my self-will to participate in the group, to be a part of something larger than myself. Um, And each group is also part of something larger than itself. Each group is a part of this larger AA as a whole. Uh, And so what does our group maybe have to give up to be a better piece of AA as a whole, to be a better member of this larger fellowship? Um, Because I want this thing to last. I want this thing to last, you know, for the rest of my life and for future generations. Um, You know, I think that's really it. The last thing I'll say is like, what do I personally have to do in this tradition? and again, kind of similar to tradition one, it's, I think for me, I have to be one willing to give things up. I have to be willing to compromise and care about being part of something greater than myself. Um, that's what got me sober. That's what keeps me sober. Um, and I have to learn to practice that in multiple ways. Again, not just me individually, but in the group I participate in. But at the same time, as is talked about more in the second tradition, I have to realize that in doing that, I, it doesn't mean I have power over anybody else or that I should use this to like please other people. Um, there's kind of a dangerous, there's, there can be a temptation when I learn the traditions, when some people learn the traditions to start wielding them, you know, holier than thou, I know better. I've been through the traditions. Um, and the goal of this is not for, in my opinion, the goal of this is for me to practice it as best as I can. Thanks Ashley. Um, not to wield it over others um, or try to <laughs> or definitely not try to go to meetings and tell them how they're affecting AA as a whole um, you know it's for me to practice in my home group primarily um, and yeah in that way balance the autonomy that each individual in each group has in AA with the, the needs of the group and the needs of AA as a whole that's all I got thank you our second 10-minute speaker is Maria. Thank you. My name is Maria, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Um, I want to uh, thank Anita for reaching out and asking me to speak, and I want to thank Deborah for making that connection for me. Um, and I'm not a member of the Atlantic Group, but I uh, would like to consider myself Atlantic Group adjacent because my sponsor and my brand sponsor were both at one time. Um, and I did actually attend the Atlantic Group retreat at the Wilson House um, back in 2019. It was really a great experience. Um, anyway, um, I always like to start at the beginning, right? Like, I feel like I was born an alcoholic. I, uh, my earliest memories, like five years old, being restless, irritable, and discontent all the time, being afraid of other people terribly but also wanting to belong so much that just, you know, I, um, sometimes I talk about the report cards that came up for my mom, right? You know, said very bright student, right? But doesn't play well with others, right? Um, you know, just the way it was. Um, so I lived with that pain of separation, um, up until the point I started drinking around 18. And when I started drinking, all of that pain of separation went away. And that was a pain I had lived with daily for my, for all of those 18 years. So when all of that went away, I really feel like I found 
my solution to life in alcohol. Um, I, while it's not part of what makes me an alcoholic, I do come from an alcoholic family. And because of that, I knew right away that my drinking wasn't normal. Um, I knew when I had blackouts that that was not normal behavior because I went to visit my brother in rehab and they would give me like education and um, you know, so I had concerns right away and I just kept taking those concerns and I kept pushing them into a dark corner of my mind. I would have these moments when I would get behind the wheel because I drove drunk all the time and putting my key into the ignition was like playing pin the tail on the donkey and I you know, I would just have that moment of clarity, but I was still getting behind me and driving home. For me to admit to somebody that I couldn't drive home would be admitting that I had a problem. And my life before drinking felt like I was dead and my life after drinking felt like I was alive and I really didn't want to go back to feeling dead again. So, I can't tell you that I, I got off the elevator really early and I can't tell you that there was anything major of major significance that happened that brought me in here. Um, there were things that happened, um, you know, um, I would have you know, different over the course of my, the time I drank, I had different groups of people that I hung out with and it would just come to the point that I would do so many embarrassing things with that one group of people that I couldn't face them anymore. And then I find a new group of people and, and the, uh, with my last drinking buddy, it was not that I had decided that I was too embarrassed to hang out with her anymore. It was that she decided that she didn't want to be responsible for me anymore. And she didn't want to hang out with me anymore. But, um, also, what happened was that I was at a New Year's Eve family party with, and I was driving my mother and my grandmother home and I had that experience again of trying to put the key in the ignition and feeling like I was playing from the tail on the donkey. And I had my mother and my grandmother in the car with me and I was not comfortable with that. And so I spent um, the four months after that trying to, I was approaching women I knew that were in AA because I was a member of another fellowship and telling them that I had concerns about my drinking and they told me to go to uh, this meeting uh, or to go to an open AA meeting and finally I approached a woman who said if you meet me at this Dunkin' Donuts I'll take you with me to this AA meeting and I really needed that you know I was terrified and I needed somebody to hold my hand and uh, I try and remember that when other people are reaching out for help today and uh and it was, I, I um, really appreciated um, that talk on the, the fourth tradition just because that first meeting I went to is not a meeting that I would have chosen for my home group today, but it was my home group then and it was very social and we weren't talking about this. Thank you, Ashley. We weren't talking about the steps and we, we, we weren't doing that. We were going bowling and we were going dancing. And, it kept me here, you know, long enough to find my way to the solution. And, uh, and that's what I needed at the time. Like I needed something to just keep me here. Um, and then my brother uh, died 
about a year and a half. I, I was about a year and a half sober. My brother died, and I didn't have a solution, and I didn't have any type of conscious contact with a higher power, and I um, felt lost for about a year in AA until I ended up at a meeting and met a woman who sat me down at her kitchen table, and we read the big book together, and she always said, we read the black and we follow the instructions. And where it said, pray, we prayed, and where it said, write, I wrote. And, you know, I've done this process with a few different sponsors over the years, and, you know, it's been life-changing. Um, and I, I don't wanna, um, run out of time to tell uh, at least one of my favorite stories about how life-changing this is. I, um, you know, one of the things I say in AA all the time, uh, or that I hear in AA all the time is to, that we act our way into right thinking or um, to act as if, and I, those, those phrases always confuse me. And it, my current sponsor is really big on service. And uh, what I've, I didn't really understand that at the time either, right? Just go call people, right? Go call a newcomer, go get out of yourself. And I did, I took that in, I took that direction because I was uncomfortable and I'll just do what, you know, I have to say when I first started at the, thank you, Ashley. Um, when I first started at this, if you told me to stand on my head in the corner and hold my breath, I would have done it. Um, I just wanted relief. And when I made those phone calls, while I was on the phone with a person, I would get relief while I was on the phone. And the more I persisted in that effort, there were some times that there was relief in between the phone calls. And the more I persisted in that effort, there were even times in between the phone calls that I actually thought of those other people, right? And that, for a person who was always only concerned with what you were thinking about me and always just having bad thoughts about myself and never, ever thinking about my effect on you or what was going on in your life, that's a miracle for me. So I'm really, really grateful to be sober and um, I uh, just checking my time, I'm sorry. Um, you have two minutes. Thank you. Um, and uh, you know, um, I'm also really grateful because I got the, off the elevator early that the only requirement for membership in AA is a desire to stop drinking. A woman that I know reminded me of that recently, um, that I didn't have to earn my seat here by the amount that I drank. I don't have any desire to go back out there and do any more research and development. Uh, and, uh, you know, the last story I'll share um, really quickly, um, I love to talk about my grandmother. I got to be there when she took her last breaths and I can't tell you the whole story because it's too long, but she asked me to be there. And uh, as the time worked out that I would, I happened to walk in 15 minutes before she passed away. And AA really put me there. I had a sponsee who I was working with who didn't drive and she lives south of where my, thank you again, Ashley. Uh, she lives south of where my grandmother was in the nursing home and when I would drive home on Sundays after reading with her I would stop and visit my grandmother and so I really forged that relationship I had with her 
And um, I've heard people say, you know, AA gives us what like our parents tried to teach us, but we could never really get. And my mom always said, call your grandmother, you know, take care of your grandmother, or, you know, look after your grandmother. And AA put me there and, uh, in a really specific and significant way. And there's just no greater um, amazing honor that I've ever been asked before than to be there for her um, when she transitioned from this life into the next. I, um, and the last thing I'll say um, as my time is up is that um, A gives me the ability to move comfortably through the world most days. And, and again, that also for me today is a miracle. Thank you so much. As was said, this meeting is open to anyone. However, we are an anonymous fellowship and ask that what you hear and whom you see remain here. Our main speaker tonight is Barb C. My name is Barbara. I'm an alcoholic. Hello, Atlantic Group. What an honor to be here. What a fantastic group you have. I've been to your meeting a couple of times when I've been in New York City to visit my beautiful friend, Barry. And um, of course, um, and got to meet Deborah and Zandra and um, probably some other people that are on this call. Um, all right, I'm going to start my timer, even though I know one of the service positions is someone who's going to send me a lot of notifications <laughs> of where I'm at in the journey. So no, don't worry, newcomers. This will be over soon. It's okay. Hang in there. Congratulations to everyone that uh, celebrated milestones or was in their first 90 days, 100 days, first you know few months. Um, you're an Alcoholics Anonymous, so hold on. You're in for the ride of your life. I had no idea what I was getting into. And it's just been absolutely a real butt kicking, and I'm grateful for it. Um, so my sobriety date's August 16, 1992. I got sober when I was 28 years old in Portland, Oregon. And, um, you know, I am what my husband basically told me today, just a run-of-the-mill drunk. No super exciting stuff. I am like what most of us are. Um, I'm a drinker. And... I think I was born this way, that's my experience. I always had feelings of apartness, difference. Uh, I felt different then, not good enough. I always felt like I was on the outside. I really struggled with shyness. You guys quickly informed me that was self-obsession. Thank you for that. And I just didn't feel like I fit into the world. I'm an only child and I thought, I thought two things. One, I thought I was adopted or actually when I was younger and learned about aliens, I thought maybe I was from another planet. So that's fun. And, you know, just never could feel comfortable in my own skin. Not ever. Um, my dad is a self-professed alcoholic. He's always said, I'm an alcoholic, so deal with it. And my mom is what we refer to in AA as maybe an untreated Al-Anon, very codependent. And so she technically had two kids. She had me to raise and she had my dad to raise. And it was not a good relationship, but they did their very best with what they had. Uh, to work with and um, they made it to about I think 15 years and then my dad came to my mom one day and said I, I've fallen in love with your best friend and I'll see you later <laughs> and so uh, the problem we thought was was uh, my dad's alcoholism my whole family thought the reason I behaved the way I behaved was because my dad was alcoholic so the problem had been removed from the house but the you know little did they know I had inherited a gene if it is indeed genetic my experience is it is that um, I got my dad's alcoholism. And so when I was about 16 years old, I went to a wedding reception with my mother. And there was a lot of people there, obviously a bride was at a private home. 
and there was a young man there who was really popular, was a year older than me. And as always for me, I felt unbelievably jealous of anyone that was getting more attention. I felt horribly uncomfortable in my own skin. I was very, very shy. I couldn't even talk to that guy. His name was Dennis. And uh, a bunch of the kids were kind of over in the corner. And he pushed a beer across the table to me. And, you know, reflecting back on that, he could have pushed drugs across the table or any number of things. And I would have been like, no, thank you. But somehow I intuitively knew to take that beer. And I took a couple of gulps of that beer. I weighed 128 pounds, sopping wet. And that beer did what it does to all human beings. It, you know, affected the... I guess restricted some of the oxygen absorption or however the scientific thing is we can feel a little bit uh, lightheaded but what it did to me is it changed that room so prior to taking that drink I was not good enough on the outside riddled with shyness and I got that alcohol in my body I can remember it as if it were yesterday and I don't know if uh, anyone but alcoholics remember their first drink but I can remember it and the way that it felt it went down my back it came back up into my neck and out my arms. And maybe 10 seconds had elapsed from when I took those gulps. Uh, the room changed 100%. All of a sudden, I was more than good enough. I looked at that guy, Dennis, and I thought, he's not that great. Um, you know, I, I thought, my God, they're lucky I'm here, you know. And my mom, who had just gotten rid of the alcoholic in our family, uh, saw that I was drinking. And my mom thinks that alcohol causes alcoholism. My understanding is it's it's a you know uh, it's not what causes alcoholism. It's a symptom of alcoholism. But she thought that me consuming alcohol would turn me into my father. So she, you know, my memory is she like curdled over a couch and jumped over a table to get to me and swatted that alcohol out of my hand. Um, I'm sure she was more delicate than that, but she was terrified and she pulled me out of that wedding reception, put me in the car, but it was too late. And what had happened for me is I had ingested enough alcohol that I had something happen that only happens to alcoholics. And that is I started to have this phenomenon of craving. I wanted more. And when I can't have alcohol, when it's not with me, I'm obsessing about it. I have an obsession of the mind. And it turned that switch on. And as we drove home, you know, it was the first time in my recollection that I actually felt the sunshine on my face and the cool breeze, uh, you know, in my hair. I, I felt like I had never felt life prior to that moment. I felt like I could breathe down to the bottom of my toes. I felt complete and utter peace and relief. And if you can get that from simply alcohol and you feel the way I felt prior to ingesting that, if you're an alcoholic, alcoholic of my type, you're going to drink again. <laughs> you will drink again. And, you know, I believe, and I heard this in Alcoholics Anonymous and truly identified with it when I first heard it, that alcohol saved my sanity. And it truly saved my sanity until it destroyed me. Um, you know, and it didn't give me any warning that it was going to start to eat me alive. Um, and that's why I ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous. On that ride home, uh, I, I, you know, kept thinking, how is this good? How am I ever going to drink again? Uh, very, very happy to have found alcohol. My mom got very upset. She sent me to my room. I put my headphones on. I listened to this group called The Cars. And I listened to this song called Moving in Stereo. And it moved from side to side on my headphones. And I had arrived. Absolute bliss. Even music sounded better with alcohol in my system. Everything was better with alcohol in my system. And from that day until the age of 28, I took a life full of promise full of talents and gifts, um, you know, and all sorts of abilities to, to carve out a nice place in our society. And all of that 
went to the background. Everything became less important than drinking. Everything. Relationships, uh, academics, talents, everything. Job, you name it. And so, you know, I went to college. I was so excited to get there. We had a code of conduct in high school that you would sign. And if you broke that code of conduct, you drank or did drugs or something, you'd get kicked off. All of these things. I was a cheerleader. I was in band. I was in athletics. And um, I never got caught. But when I went to college, I felt total relief because I knew that I had freedom to be who I am. I didn't know that what I am is a drunk. I'm an alcoholic. I just thought now I can drink without worrying about getting in trouble. And I did that. And while I was in college, I met a young man who was to be the person that, that um, you know, was sort of the person that led me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was someone when he would show up at parties, everybody would leave because they knew the cops were, were quickly behind. And he's one of those people that is an alcoholic that is not functioning. Most alcoholics, so says my, uh, my husband, who's also in recovery, and is this man that I'm describing to you, his old sponsor, Cliff Roach, who passed away years ago, he used, to, he used to say that alcoholics, uh, most of us die functioning alcoholics. Most of us don't end up under a bridge with a bag of ripple and a paper bag. Most of us really try to, you know, suit up and show up and keep up that, that facade that everything's fine. In fact, I might even be better than you and I'm doing it and I'm grinding through and I'm going to get it done. I pay the bills and I show up for my family and here I am. And, um, you know, most of us are like that. This man that I ultimately married is not. He's not a functioning alcoholic. And so, you know, I was creating an idea of what alcoholism is in my head. My dad was an adulterer and a horrible drunk. My grandfather was a horrible drunk and ruined a, an acting career. My husband is a, uh, you know, this man that I, I'm not married to yet uh, has all these talents and gifts. And he's a nightmare. He can clear out a room just with his obnoxiousness behind his drinking. That must be alcoholism. And I was fighting for my right to drink from the very beginning, the compare and contrast. And, you know, eventually you run out of people to compare and contrast. Eventually, if you're lucky, you become a lower companion because you kind of run out of where you can dig, how much deeper you can get in this disease. But I wasn't there yet. And he disappeared briefly in 1987 and he came back to school and he was a different person. And what had happened is that he had gone through all these DUIs and all this jail time and all this stuff. And he had found Alcoholics Anonymous. So I got a front row seat of what can happen to a person who gets sober in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I saw someone that was non-functioning, you know, just spiritually bankrupt, nightmare of a human being. And I saw the light turn on in his eyes. And you know what my alcoholism said? God, I can't wait till he can drink again someday. I really miss drinking with this guy. I thought that alcoholism could be cured. I thought that if you didn't drink for a period of time and you got your act together, and you, I guess this AA thing would fix you. Uh, I didn't understand that this is a terminal progressive disease, that it's with me for the rest of my life. That's it, you know. It doesn't have to define me if, if I finally get sober, but it is a big part of who I am. And uh, so I realized during that time, we, we dated briefly and, and um, you know, I told him not to come around when he was drunk. And, you know, he just, he couldn't not drink until he found AA. He got sober. A few months later, I graduated college and I went to California because I had an epiphany. I figured out what was wrong. Here's what's wrong. Um, what's wrong with me is I'm, I was born in California. My parents moved me to Oregon. So I moved back down to California. You guys taught me that that, that obsessive moving, changing my jobs, changing maybe relationships, changing where I live, changing all these things is called a geographic and the challenge of a geographic is there's a problem with it and that is that i bring the problem with me the problem is me and i didn't know that i thought 
people, places, and things were the problem. I thought everything outside of me was the problem. I never looked at me. I never took responsibility for me. I never, ever acted my age, not ever. And so, you know, I moved to California and I started to, I took my bachelor of science degree in elementary education. I became a cocktail waitress because <laughs> it turns out I don't even really like kids, but I got a degree in it because, you know, that's how thoroughly I think through my life. And I moved to California and I was there for five years and it took a life full of promise and I burned it to the ground and then I bought a shovel and I kept digging and I just, I just annihilated this, uh, this beautiful life that I could have had. And I took a few hostages with me along the way destroyed their lives too i'm like a whirlwind i'm just like what the big book says i just gather it all up you know those pictures they show tornadoes when there's cows and farmhouses and cars in it that was me that was my life and you know during that time i had stayed in touch with this guy chris who now at this point is about five years sober and he was down visiting his dad and i got to um uh, go and have uh you know, some Taco Bell with him and go for a ride up Pacific Coast Highway, which runs along parallel to the, to the, uh, to the ocean. And uh, is it parallel? Yeah, parallel to the beautiful Pacific Ocean. And he said, you know, you deserve to be happy. And quickly, I thought, you're right. I do need to be happy and I do deserve to be happy and you're it. And so I went home and I didn't tell my boyfriend who I'd been living with for three years that we were breaking up. I just moved out during my lunch break and he got to discover that. And that's how I break up with people. That's how much I care about other people. And I moved up to Oregon and uh, I, I uh, moved in with Chris and we got engaged and now everything's going to be okay because don't you know, I'm a girl that was living in California and actually I need to be back in Oregon. That's what the problem was. And, you know, during this whole time while I'm, while I'm doing my research as an alcoholic, I'm doing things like I'm, I'm drinking when I don't want to, and I'm drinking uh, before very important events, and I'm, you know, I'm hungover at work, and, I'm, and I don't want to put in a, a full day's work for a full day's pay, and I have a bad attitude, and you know, I'm spending money I don't have on alcohol, and I'm going to clubs, and I, you know, I, I absolutely am powerless over alcohol, but again, I don't see that that's me. I don't understand that there's alcohol in the mix, because alcohol is my solution. That's the only time that I feel good and comfortable and good enough and a part of the world. I have constantly felt like I'm just an alien walking amongst these earth people, just standing out like a, a crazy sore thumb. And, you know, alcohol tamped that down and made me, as they say, walk amongst the earth people, you know, unnoticed in some ways, which is actually an illusion. I stuck out even more. The only thing that's allowed me to function in the world and walk amongst the earth people undetected is Alcoholics Anonymous and recovery. Because now I can learn to, you know, connect with a higher power and be a part of, of this society and not act out, not be a baby and not be immature, not be demanding, not be blaming. But all of that has been, you know, a journey that I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the way that I got there is I moved up to Oregon to be with this guy, Chris, and I had this great idea. I told him, guess what? I'm not going to drink. I'm going to do that for you. And, uh, and he's like, okay, because when he looked at me, he didn't know that I'm alcoholic because I hadn't had DUA, DUIs. I hadn't been incarcerated. Uh, I hadn't had liver damage. You know, I'd never, I'd never had uh, been to treatment. None of those things had happened for me. I'm a functioning alcoholic. I'm responsible. I'm accountable. I suit up and I show up. I do the grind. And, you know, that might not have continued on, but I was 28 years old and I was still holding it together. 
And so I just didn't drink. And within a short period of time, the police had been called on me. I tried to jump from a moving car. You know, we were just having a lovely relationship. I was completely and utterly insane. I need a sufficient substitute. I can't just not drink. I can't just not drink. I don't know if you can relate to that. But if you take away my solution, thank you, 15 minutes. Um, you know, I, I'm, I need a sufficient substitute. And uh, so what had happened is I was eating a lot of sugar, trying to kind of medicate myself. I had gotten a novelty Hershey bar. They're really big. And I was eating it like a ravenous rat. And I would hide it so that he wouldn't find it. But he found the last little pieces of it. And he had eaten it. So I go to my stash <laughs> to eat this chocolate. And it's gone, and I lose my ever-loving mind. And we, you know, just have this big blow-up. And he says to me, Barb, if you were to drink again, what would you do? And I couldn't even find my way to the grocery store in Portland, Oregon at that time. But uh, I knew where all the alcohol uh, establishment, drinking establishments were. I just kind of documented them unintentionally. And I said, oh, I go down to this place down in Fayette, a double shot of gold with a beer back, and I keep them coming. And then I go to this mission theater, and they serve alcohol there. And... Um, he said, what would your mom do if she'd sworn off drinking? My mom wouldn't swear off drinking. Again, she thinks alcohol is a beverage. She, you know, she doesn't show up at a party with a half rack of milk. You know, she, she doesn't have a problem with alcohol. She's not alcoholic. She's not bodily and mentally different than her fellows. She's not us. And, uh, you know, she's a person, and you've seen these people, she orders a drink, and she only drinks a quarter of it or half of it, and then she leaves it, leaves the restaurant. I, I don't even know. I've actually asked strangers, are you going to finish that? <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't understand people like her. God bless her. My dad, he said, what would your dad do if he swore off alcohol? Now, my dad's an alcoholic. And I said, I think, you know, he'd probably go down to Santa Fe, have a double shot, quarter gold with a beer back. And I had my moment of clarity. God intervened in there. And I said to Chris, oh, my God, am I an alcoholic? Never it occurred to me. Never. And he said, I can't answer that. It's a self-diagnosed disease. And I'm glad he said that because I'd had people in my life say to me, you might want to slow it down. You might not want to drink so much. You better be careful. Your dad's a drunk. And uh, you tell me that, I, I think, I don't need you in my life anymore. I don't want to hear it. So, um, okay, I just my phone told me again, 15 minutes. Uh, so anyway, he's suggested that maybe I call the AA hotline. Thank you to all of you that are of service to Alcoholics Anonymous in that capacity and all the other service positions. Because I called that phone number and somebody answered at like two in the morning. And, uh, you know, I'm blethering, crying, sobbing like, a, like an idiot. And the man says to me, Barbara, what is it that you want to do? And maybe he meant, do you want to go to treatment? Do you want to go to detox? What is it that you want to do? And I said, well, I just need an effing drink. <laughs> and he said, just so you know, a non-alcoholic probably wouldn't answer that question that way. And I had another moment of clarity. I was like, oh. Okay. And he said, I suggest you get to an AA meeting. And the next morning I went to my first, I'd been to AA meetings with Chris because I'm a good person. I go with the poor drunk, at, you know, to their, their little AA meetings. And I didn't hear a thing when I would, when I would sit there, but, but my perception had shifted that night and I sat there and every single person in that room shared a little of what it was like, what happened what it was like now so much. I identified so much. I actually thought Chris had called several people prior to that meeting and told them my story that's how much i identified with them and uh, i was hooked into alcoholics anonymous and then i came home that night and my alcoholism started fighting for its right to exist and it said you know your case is a little different you're not like this you know horrible blackout drunk that got these duis and these people have this and i started looking for the differences and although i kept going to meetings of alcoholics anonymous 
I sat there and thought my case is different. And if I think my case is different, I don't have to do what you have to do. And I was going to meetings where people periodically would talk about drugs. And I'd say, see, I didn't do heroin. I didn't do those those things. I must not be an alcoholic. And, you know, that, that powerful, um, you know, absolutely imperative need of identification. I have a disease that tells me I don't have it. It's the only disease that does that. And if I have that in my head and I'm not identifying with the people in those rooms and hearing alcoholics share about alcoholism, I'm dead. I am dead. And, you know, I have other things that have been challenges for me in my journey um, that I could share about. But I know for a fact that maybe 5% of the people have this or 10% of the people identify with that. But 100% of the people on this call identify with alcohol and alcoholism. That's why it's called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm so grateful that that meeting had that tradition in place, that they knew that that was their primary purpose, for them to be there to carry the message to the alcoholic who was still suffering. I had to hear that or I never would have stayed. I barely stayed when I identified 100%. So what I did for the next two years, because I'm brilliant this way, is I decided I'd do my program my way. And I sat in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for two years dying of untreated alcoholism, stone cold sober. Didn't take a drink, but I wasn't doing the program as it was outlined in the book. I didn't get a sponsor. I did do the steps with someone who wasn't in the program, but I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't do prayer hardly at all. I did not do meditation. Um, I did sponsor, because you know, ego. So here I am, you know, carrying the mess <laughs> to the newcomer. Thankfully, a lot of those people stayed sober because God is either everything or nothing. Turns out he's everything and he can take care of those people. But boy, you know, I wish that I would have done the program as it was outlined in the book. And at two years of sobriety, the bottom fell out in my life. And, uh, you know, I, I had this big secret and it was, if this, you know, if this secret ever happened, if it ever came to fruition, I would drink again. And it did. If you have a secret, newcomers or old timers, tell someone in recovery, you know, those things will eat us alive. And I, uh, I had just asked a woman to sponsor me the week before. And uh, the, the secret was, you know, the bottom fell out in my marriage and, and we were doomed and it was not going to work. And I love this man. I loved him. He's, he's everything to me. And um, I asked this woman to sponsor me. And so I was in the routine of going to meetings. I did go to meetings. I went to lots of meetings and I had, you know, sober feet, as they say. And I went to my home group. And I was sitting there, and about halfway through the meeting, they did the seventh tradition. And I thought, I can't do it. I can't do this anymore. I'm not. What's the point? You know? And I stood up, and in front of everyone in my group, about 35 women, I said, F this. I'm a class act that way. And uh, I don't do that as much anymore. But I went to the bathroom instead of to my car. And that woman that I'd asked sponsored me followed me to, to, to the bathroom. And she said, my God, Barbara, what's going on? And I came out of that bathroom stall and I told her the truth. It was the first person I'd ever told the absolute truth about me in my entire life. And she embraced me in her arms. It was a big busted woman. She's about five foot two. I'm five nine. And uh, it was the best hug I've ever had in my entire life. And she said, you don't have to drink over this. And we'll go back through the steps and it will be okay. And the reason I believed her is because I had sat in rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for the last two years and I saw that this woman was alcoholic and I heard that she was alcoholic. She drank like me, she felt like me, she was me and she was doing Alcoholics Anonymous and she wasn't drinking anymore and she was happy. And that's the only reason that I decided that I would take that risk and do, do the program with her, that's it. And so I started my sobriety, truly. And you know, I, 
I did the program as it's outlined in the book, and a lot of alcoholics had to die for a, you know, for the Alcoholics Anonymous to kind of get this right. But it works. If you're new, I can tell you, it works if you work it. That's what we say at the end of meetings. We say that because it's true. It's an absolute fact, and that's my experience. And I heard a speaker once say, I'm not trying to convince you of this. I'm not getting a toaster or something after this share, you know. I'm not being paid for this. I'm sharing my experience, strength, and hope with you as an alcoholic who was doomed to an alcoholic death, if I was lucky. My God, it can take some of us years and years and years and years. My dad's going to be 79. He's still drinking. Ew. An alcoholic in the throes of this disease is an unlovely creature. It is horrific. I had a guy say to me in a club once, you don't have very many drinking years left. You better get your, you know, SHIT together. And I thought, I'm 26, you know. But the reality is, is that this this disease does not look good on us as we age. It doesn't look great on us when we're younger. Um, But, you know, I've stayed in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. I go to meetings. I have a sponsor. I sponsor women. Um, You know, at 10 years of sobriety, I got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And it was like I thought the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And my neurologist, whose sister is sober and Alcoholics Anonymous, so she knows a little something about recovery, she said, just so you know, your multiple sclerosis probably won't kill you, but I know for a fact your alcoholism will. Keep that as a priority. A neurologist told me that, you know, almost like God talking through her. Because, you know, I, I guess I thought when I got sober, life would get perfect and easy and there'd be no obstacles. And, you know, as I've, as I've continued on in the journey, now I have Hashimoto's disease. Now, you know, I've had to have kidney stone surgery. I've had, you know, I, I'm one of those people that just kind of is falling apart, even though I look totally healthy. And the reality is this, is that I haven't drank through any of it. I haven't taken any narcotics through any of it. I have given it to God. And I'm not saying that people don't need to do what they need to do for surgeries and stuff. I'm telling you that the medical community, they want you to not suffer and God bless them for that. But the reality is, is that first I lean on God and first I lean on my program because I can't take the risk of turning this allergy back on this phenomenon of craving. I cannot take the risk of drinking again. I don't want to drink again, but that doesn't matter if I don't want to drink again. I will drink again if I don't keep my sobriety absolute first and foremost in my life. I've watched sponsees and women in the program get all these gifts of sobriety, you know, partners and and babies and houses and cars and great jobs. And I've seen people put that before their sobriety. Like somehow I did this, like somehow I did this life. I couldn't do anything and couldn't hold anything together for 28 years, but somehow, you know, I'm doing it now. Absolutely not. I'm an alcoholic. I am powerless over alcohol. And I've watched people put, you know, their recovery behind and I've watched them lose it. Um, My husband just told me today, one of his sponsees told him that a gal that I've known for many, many, many years just relapsed and now she has a month. It's like you're getting punched in the gut because all of us understand that, you know, yes, maybe you can get sobriety again, but I was told in early sobriety, boy, you get here, you better hold on to your seat and fight for your place in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. This this recovery thing, yes, it's available. And we're always here for the alcoholic who's still suffering. But my sobriety date is the most precious thing that I have ever, ever been given. And I want to keep it, but I have to work for it. And, you know, one of my struggles has been meditation. And so I got this great gift called a pandemic that freed up some extra time. <laughs> and so, you know, there are blessings and the horrors of, of, you know, things that happen that we're powerless over. And 
you know, somewhere in, in the pandemic, um, I, I was like, maybe I should start trying to really do meditation. You know, <laughs> so I've been doing that uh, religiously, if you want to call it that, for the last uh, couple of months, and it's made a huge, huge difference in just the way that I feel in my own skin. And I have really struggled with my health during this last year. I don't know what's going on. It's even worse than it's ever been. But that's okay. I know I'm not being punished by this power. You know, I used to think that God hated me, that I was a mistake, that I that I was born to suffer. I had I had these old beliefs, these old tapes that would play in my head. And, you know, the God of my childhood, I could not do business with. It's the same God of my adult sobriety, but, but I have a different relationship. And, you know, it tells us in step 11 that we get to through prayer and meditation and prove that conscious contact with that power. It is there for me to have. I can choose to suffer. You know, that old saying, everyone's about as happy as they make up their mind to be. That has been my experience. My recovery is about as robust and as effective as I make up my mind that it will be. And, you know, when I was um, younger and lived in Hollywood, California, and and now my husband and I actually split time between Hollywood. It was Portland, but I can't do Portland anymore. So now we're in Central Oregon riding out the pandemic. But, um, you know, I used to think when I moved to Hollywood in my 20s, I can't wait till I get discovered. You know, that somebody was going to like come to my door, knock on my door and say, hey, want to be famous? And that's, you know, the way that I kind of did my sobriety in the beginning. I would sit there in the rooms and really think through osmosis, through the people that were doing it, the people that were suiting up and showing up and doing the deal that I could somehow touch them and like a Star Trek episode, just absorb their energy. And that is not my experience. Absolutely. I get to take the actions and I get to have this relationship with God and I get to have benefits and the beauty and the comfort and the peace of mind that comes from being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't know, did you send me my five minute? I apologize. Yeah. Um, my phone says that I have like three yeah, minutes, two minutes. Yeah. Minute, 18 seconds. Great. Apparently my phone doesn't tell me that I'm getting a text when it's running. So anyway, I'll wrap it up technology and me never going to be friends never um i I just want to say to the newcomers you know i hope that you keep coming back i hope you find something here that i found i i'm an only child like i mentioned and i was told early on that i have i will never be alone again that i have tapped into something that is you know a family a family of sober alcoholics that I have the opportunity to be of service, that no far, doesn't matter how far down the scale I've gone, that my experience can benefit others, that I can give this away and I will be filled up. And I could do, you know, I don't want, I don't like uh, speaking in meetings. It makes me sick. <laughs> I'll probably be like ill for the next two days, but I will tell you this, that I would do this every day, all day, if I could keep my sobriety and I can never, give back enough to Alcoholics Anonymous for what it's given me. Um, Thank you for the Atlantic Group for um, having this meeting. You guys, you have a national reputation because you guys rock. And uh, good sobriety to be had here. Newcomers, you have tapped into something amazing. Keep coming back. It actually works if you work it. So work it. Thanks. Thank you so much. My name is Deborah. I'm an alcoholic and I chair the Atlantic Group. Let's thank tonight's speakers, Josh P, Maria, and Barb C. Thanks so much, guys. It was a great meeting. You have heard a typical virtual AA meeting. We hope you will return and bring a friend.